0: Greetings, greetings, greetings. I am delighted to do this episode today. Today's read is going to be a joy because it's an article about, uh, I guess I would call him a personality. He's so much, though. I'm speaking about Steven Satterfield. He's, um, I was introduced to him via his Netflix series, High on the Hog. That series, the way he was able to trace Black history from starting with the continent, starting prior to slavery, is so important. anytime somebody addresses Black history prior to enslavement, I'm there. I'm, I'm all in because while slavery is a portion, it's not, it's not the full story. So I appreciate people who don't give a fragmented history of black people. So Stephen Satterfield traced it in, I forgot how many episodes, it was either four or five or six, but High on the Hog was amazing. It was an amazing series. And I like him because he's not like anybody stereotype. He's just himself. And he's... <laughs> it surprised me to see a bougie person speaking about history, our history in that way. So the reason I'm laughing, I'm about to define bougie. Um, let me see if I wrote this right. Bougie. Bougie. So the, the dictionary definition of bougie is a thin, flexible, surgical instrument for exploring or dialing a passage of the body. That's the dictionary.com um, first definition. Then there's another definition, also dictionary.com, and it says, Relating to or characteristic of a person who flaunts newly acquired wealth without necessarily embracing the cultural values and pretensions of the upper middle class. That bougie feeling when you're drinking high-end champagne <laughs> out of a red plastic cup. Wow. I think I need to go to um the Urban Dictionary for this. This is interesting. So when I typed in bougie, it said, a question popped up that said, is bougie a good thing or a bad thing? And this is found on grammar. grammar.yourdictionary.com as slang. When used in the Black community, bougie with a hard G sound typically described someone who appears to be trying to act like they'd rather be in the white community. Ah, bougie. Another question was, what is bougie used for? Bougie is often used with disparaging intent and perceived as insulting, depending on the cultural or social context of its use. That's a fact. It originated as slang in the African-American community. Okay, so yeah. So for me, how I'm saying he's bougie is how I use the word bougie. Um, He seems like the type of person, and I haven't read the article about him yet, but he seems like the type of person who was raised in a family that had material wealth. In a black family, you can tell he's fully black, um, but... Probably more than likely went to all white schools, maybe was the first or the only black family in their neighborhood. And, um, so yeah, I was surprised. Like, you would think he, he comes off as the type of person <laughs> that, um, does Martha's Vineyard, the Hamptons, or whatever section, Oak Bluffs, and, um, so. When I saw, I saw him speaking, I saw him presenting High on the Hog the way he did. I was just so proud of him because he was just encompassing everything he is. He was just being himself. So I know, well, I hope I will like him even more after reading this article that was written about him in the New Yorker Online Magazine. Let's get into it. <music> Today's read can be found at www.newyorker.com in the Annals of Gastronomy section of the New Yorker magazine, written by Dorothy Wickenden, published on May 22nd, 2023. And the headline is Stephen Satterfield puts Black cuisine at the center of U.S. history. The host of Netflix's High on the Hog draws seductive stories from a bittersweet legacy. Stephen Satterfield, the host of the Netflix food history series High on the Hog, was bent over the stove in his parents' kitchen near Atlanta. It was one o'clock on a February afternoon, and he was preparing Sunday dinner for the family. Most of the meal was canonical black southern food. Turnip greens simmered for hours. Cheese grits. Biscuits baked in a cast iron skillet. The main course was catfish, coated in cornmeal and sizzling in avocado oil. The fish, though had a widely disputed accompaniment, accompaniment, accompaniment. With a dimpled smile, Satterfield lifted a lid to reveal a pot full of spaghetti and tomato sauce. Depending on whom you ask, this combination is either as congenial as shrimp and grits or as regrettable as a bad marriage. The food writer, Adrian Miller, once noted, It may be the most controversial soul food coupling since someone decided it was a good idea to marinate dill pickles in Kool-Aid. I don't know about any of that, but it sounds interesting. Satterfield, who is 39, first encountered the dish as a family tradition in Mississippi, where his maternal grandmother was born. The river was full of catfish and spaghetti was cheap. In 1946, she and his grandfather followed the Great Migration route north to Gary, Indiana. When Stephen was growing up, his father often fixed catfish and spaghetti for Sunday dinners and four church fish fries. Satterfield didn't realize the pairing's wider significance until he was getting ready for an episode of High on the Hog, which refracts the history of the United States through the lens of black food. Miller, who appears in the series, had an explanation. Catfish and spaghetti originated in the deep south in the late 1800s as Italian immigrants settled in Mississippi and Louisiana. Black southerners adopted spaghetti and came to consider it like coleslaw or potato salad, a pleasing side dish to fried fish. This is what Satterfield calls a good origin story, an unexpected confluence of historical streams. There are countless others. Peanuts, a key ingredient in West African stews, got their American nickname, goobers, from the Bantu word in George Washington's presidential kitchen was run by an enslaved man named Hercules until he escaped servitude and vanished. Such stories about the African diaspora's influences on American cuisine are disclosed in rich detail by Jessica B. Harris in the 2011 book, High on the Hog, The Basis for the Show. Produced and directed almost entirely by African Americans, the series features Black chefs, pitmasters, historians, farmers, entrepreneurs, and cookbook writers discussing their heritages and creating delectable meals. Satterfield presides like an unusually solicitous reporter. He listens intently as his guests excavate buried histories and lends a hand as they cook. At his parents' house, Satterfield, a bearded, loose-limbed, six feet five, had a sous chef, his girlfriend, Gabriela Oviedo, a writer who also collaborates on his business, but having spent his 20s training at high-end restaurants, he had things under control. Half a dozen family members milled hungrily around the living room until Satterfield's father, Sam, returned from church. Familiar with his son's self-described bougie tastes, I didn't even know he considered himself bougie. (laughs) Familiar with his son's self-described bougie tastes, Sam apparently expected a showy meal, but he was pleasantly surprised. Stephen, he exclaimed, you make catfish and spaghetti. Harris sometimes cites an African proverb, when the tale of the hunt is written by the lion, it will be a very different tale. With the series, Satterfield and his partners wanted to upend Americans' view of their history. They knew how difficult it would be to do that in four episodes, beginning in the slave markets of West Africa and tracing centuries of suffering and transcendence in the United States. But Satterfield trusted in the seductive power of good cooking. I have to pause here because this writer, I can always tell when someone is not culturally aware. Well, this is how I'll put it. I can always tell when someone's perspective is a Western perspective solely because the slave markets of West Africa makes it seems like seem like West African people just enslaved each other and that's what was part of our culture. No ma'am. Europeans built those markets, built, maintained and those slave markets Buildings are still there, so European slave markets located in West Africa is the correct wording. I digress. But Satterfield trusted in the seductive power of good cooking. How do you get away with it if it's not about food? In the second episode, The Rice Kingdom, the culinary historian Michael Twitty prepares okra and crab soup at the Magnolia Plantation outside Charleston. Despite the fact that we were in hell, that we were being worked to death, he said, we created a cuisine. This food, he noted, was named for the soul, something invisible that you could feel like love and God. High on the Hog debuted when many Americans were in an unusually reflective mood. And again, she says when many Americans, she's referring to white Americans because a lot black America we have to be reflective daily let me not use the word have to many of us are reflective daily because of the things we go through daily racism anti-blackness is not new to us didn't begin in 2020 with the murder of George Floyd it didn't so she's speaking about white Americans um after the George Floyd murder and a year into the pandemic Mm. Justin Kirkland in Esquire called the series revolutionary. In the Times, Osai Endelin wrote, it hits the eye, mind and soul differently than any other food television program, very true, because it simply does what so few have been willing to do, give black people space to explore and express our own joy the series whose second season will be released this fall. Yes, I did not know that. High on the Hog is getting a second season. Yes, congrats, Steven Satterfield and everybody on the whole team. The series whose second season will be released this fall is available in 190 countries with subtitles in Portuguese, Arabic, and 29 other languages. Satterfield said it proved my thesis Food is the most efficient means of helping people to see themselves. The city of Gary, Indiana, isn't much to look at these days. In its prime, it contained one of North America's biggest steel plants, the Gary Works, which employed... Tens of thousands of people. But half a century after white flight and deindustrialization, the formerly booming business district consists mostly of raised lots, boarded up storefronts, and decrepit buildings. Satterfield describes Gary as the literal embodiment of the deflation of a dream. So, when he visited last year with his sister Ashley, he was surprised to spot Bugsy's Tavern a busy watering hole with a cheerful Bugs Bunny knockoff on the roof. It defies explanation, he said. A white-owned biker bar near the old color line. It's a neutral gathering zone in a mostly black city. During my visit, we pulled into the parking lot of Bugsy's. Ciderfield warned me, there's a lot of smoking. You'll want to wash your clothes afterward. A casually snappy dresser, He had arrived in cashmere trousers. I'm going to do my change of wardrobe now, he said, and slipped on a cotton hoodie and quilted navy sweats. (laughs) Ashley, a bartender at Atlanta's old colonnade restaurant, is Stephen's closest companion and the family's self-appointed deflator of egos. When I asked if Stephen did any cooking as a kid, she rolled her eyes and said he always burned things. She is also the historian for an extensive clan. When she was a girl, she liked nothing better than listening to her elders' stories. Gary, Indiana was established in nineteen oh six by a subsidiary of by a subsidiary of the United States Steel Corporation. Newspaper stories lured black Southerners and European immigrants to the magic city of steel. When Sam was a child in the 50s, Gary was known for its innovative schools, striking architecture and rapid economic growth. It was also segregated with an invisible barrier that Sam's siblings wouldn't cross. As a young man, Sam worked at the mill as a switchman for rail cars that moved giant vats of molten steel. Men lost limbs and suffered hideous burns, but employees earned what Sam called crazy money, and many Satterfields thought of Gary as the best place in the world. Sam knew that it couldn't last. One day, as he watched a ship being unloaded, he noticed crates marked Product of China and realized this is all collapsing. He embarked on a reverse migration, moving to Atlanta in 1976 inside bugsy's the walls and ceiling were hung with harley davidson paraphernalia road sign and posters advertising bike night and ladies night aging bikers sat around absorbed in their cigarettes and long necks most observed us with mild curiosity but one bandy-legged man with lanky gray hair ambled over unsteadily, pointing to the jukebox he said i played all these great songs then he informed us that he was an undercover agent for the CIA and staggered off on a bar stool, beer in hand, Stephen talked about Black Americans' fraught relationship to land and food. For centuries, they had no way to own the farms they worked. Cotton was for capital. We're basically still there in a slightly altered form. Displacement and disenfranchisement through reconstruction, Jim Crow, redlining, gentrification. Earlier, we had visited the ruins of the Satterfield homestead, bushwhacking through thorny weeds to the foundation of the house that Sam's father built. Ashley pointed to the place where their grandparents had tended a vegetable garden, which along with squirrels and rabbits caught by Sam's uncle, helped feed their large family. At the bar, Stephen said, Our dad grew up with a garden. Our mom grew up with a garden. Our grandparents grew their own food. In talks, he often mentions black farmers who raise fresh produce in food deserts so that we can reclaim our health. Ashley interjected. But a lot of people say, I don't have to do that anymore. Stephen nodded. Our mom believed We've worked our asses off so that you don't have to toil in the field. When he and Ashley were little, they lived with their parents and their maternal grandmother in a split level indicator, sharing the house with a series of foster children. Their mother, Deborah, and grandmother Louise were among a group of tough-minded, loving matriarchs known as the Weaver Weaver Women. Louise, a superb cook, ran the kitchen with help from Sam and prided herself on her layer cakes and peach cobblers. Stephen recalled, "'Watching my dad and my granny in the kitchen together, it was magic. Extended family and friends were invited to Sunday dinners, and on holidays, it wasn't uncommon to have 30 guests. Louise died at 59 of complications from diabetes. The family shattered, Stephen said. Later in his childhood, his older brother, Sam Jr., succumbed to lupus. I thought funerals were what people did. In 1989, Deborah and Sam moved with the children to Stone Mountain, 13 miles northeast of Atlanta. The town's namesake bears a 200-foot wide monument to the leaders of the Confederacy, a graven image of Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, and Jefferson Davis on horseback, holding their hats over their hearts. Satterfield described Stone Mountain as a place that perpetuated a new mythology for losers, beginning in 1915 when the Ku Klux Klan burned across atop the mountain before the birth of a nation premiered in Atlanta. At 4th of July celebrations, Ashley recalled, men in uniform and women in hoop skirts waved Confederate flags, Stephen said. It was normalized in our upbringing, living at the foot of this crazy white Monument. The town was diverse, though. Stephen talked about his elementary school as a rainbow nation of local children and immigrants from Ethiopia, Cambodia, and Russia. Deborah wanted her children to be comfortable with anyone, everyone, and to be proud of their heritage. She encouraged them to play with kids of all backgrounds and used a marker to color their Christmas tree angel brown. She encouraged them to play with kids of all backgrounds and used a marker to color their Christmas tree angel brown. But when they were finishing elementary school, Deborah's ambition kicked in, Stephen said. "Deborah has a Ph.D. and works as a public school principal. Still, she told me, I wanted them to do better. She had Stephen and Ashley tested for admission to Westminster in Atlanta's exclusive Buckhead neighborhood a school that bills itself as rooted in Christian values and wholesome intensity. When Deborah told the kids that they got in, they were inconsolable. Everything I knew was over, Stephen said. But their mother insisted, you all deserve to be around the best. Westminster, has a stone-gated entry, fastidiously tended athletic fields, and imposing brick and limestone buildings. The Satterfield's classmates, identically dressed in polo shirts and khakis, were almost all white. Stephen began skipping classes, taking his journal a joint and a tab of acid into the woods he'd sit and write poetry i was a psychedelic boy miscast from the 60s he said the other kids took adderall and antidepressants mm. during his freshman year his english teacher offered an extra credit assignment which satterfield calculated could propel me to a high c he turned in a poem called child of the grass after class the teacher told him that he had talent, but needed to apply himself. I don't know what you're doing, but knock it off, she said. You are a gifted writer. Satterfield came away with a different message. My relationship to learning through my own inquiry. Even then, he was keenly self-aware. I knew I could charm kids into liking me, he said. I was athletic and a funny, popular stoner. I sometimes exploited it. He cultivated a wide circle of acquaintances, but spent most of his time with his friend Birch Schufelt and Birch's girlfriend, Lauren. They passed the afternoons by getting high and watching the Food Network. Satterfield revered Mario Batali and Anthony Bourdain, but it was Julia Child on PBS, flutie-voiced, dish-towel-tucked into the waist of a frumpy dress, who ignited his romance with cooking. I watched her make a cheese souffle, plunging two spoons back to back into the middle and a perfect steam rising up. He bought mastering the art of French cooking and meticulously followed her recipe for souffle au fromage. I'll be damned, he said. It came out perfectly. It was the first success I'd had. The friends hung out at the Schufeld's in Ainslie Park, which Birch describes as a neighborhood of big-ass houses. Satterfield's time in Atlanta's wealthy precincts was sobering. I thought, we're so fucking broke. I felt bad for my parents. I'd never seen the spoils that money got. In the 80s, his father had lost his job at UPS after a back injury. Once he recovered, he worked odd jobs and managed restaurants. Birch's father was a banker at SunTrust. The other kid's dad's, were away on business, or were racist senators who didn't interact with us, Satterfield said. But the Shufeltz welcomed him. Before dinner, Mr. Shue, as Satterfield calls him, would disappear into his wine cellar and emerge with a bottle of good Bordeaux or Burgundy, which he encouraged the boys to enjoy. Satterfield vowed to learn what Mr. Shue knew. He told me, I wanted to speak that language. It's kind of a passport. In Chicago, I met Satterfield for a late dinner at Obelix, a buzzy French restaurant that he wanted to try. Its industrial windows looked out onto a snow squall, but inside it was bright and warm, filled with the din of guests who had paid a small fortune for exquisite food. Satterfield ordered for us, assuring me, don't worry. If there's anything you don't want, I'll eat it. I'm like a garbage disposal. We had poisson cru with a glass of Crozet Hermitage Blanc for me and a Gimone Champagne for him. Please excuse my French, I don't speak it. There were grilled leeks, vinaigrettes, seared Hokkaido scallop with ok- Okinawa sweet potato, green curry velouté, squab, and a puffy pastry. To accompany the squab, Satterfield ordered a glass of Pinot Noir. With minimal prodding, he explained the difference between the Pinot, pinot Pinot grapes of California and of Burgundy. The profile of a pinot, pinot Noir is so specific, both in terms of the potency of sunshine and what we call the barnyard character of the great grape varieties. He swirled his glass, closed his eyes, and inhaled. It gives me the sensation and the memory of a basket of mushrooms that have just been picked from a really dank forest. He talked about his trajectory. I was kind of in limbo in high school. In between these cultures and communities and what I adopted from the white people, I guess, was the sense of possibility. After a semester at the University of Oregon, Satterfield dropped out and enrolled in culinary school in Portland. Birch's parents co-signed his student loan. Living in a cheap apartment building that turned out to be full of heroin addicts, He supplemented his classes with self-guided studies in food and wine. He read every good book that he could find at Powell's, took classes at the International Sommelier Guild, and talked his way into simultaneous jobs at exclusive venues. At the four-star Benson Hotel, he started as a room service coordinator in a basement workspace, then rose to Sommelier holding daily tastings in the foyer. Still, he was an anomaly in the overwhelmingly white wine world. At one tasting, an elderly woman asked him, "'Are you even allowed to be here?' As he began reading about apartheid and its legacies, he decided, "'I didn't have the luxury not to think about it. "'I took terroir, terroir, food, culture, wine, "'and pivoted to the politics of the land.'" In 2008, with a grant from the South African Trade Department, he visited the wine country of the Western Cape. After talking to several dozen women who were unable to advance in the industry, he had a vision. I wanted to build a nonprofit training center for black winemakers. He had no idea how to set up a business, but he said, I could just figure shit out. He approached a high school friend whose father was an attorney and the firm agreed to help with the paperwork. The timing was vexed. Just as he started the project, he turned on CNN in his hotel room and learned that Lehman Brothers had crashed. He kept at it for two years, but the recession, along with industry regulations, proved insurmountable. Satterfield bounced back by moving to San Francisco and heading to one of the city's most popular gathering places, Nopa, a farm to table restaurant that emphasizes what it calls honest food, well-curated wines, and a diverse community of guests. Jeff Hanak, one of the owners, hired Satterfield as a sommelier. In his free time, he volunteered at a garden at Ida B. Wells High School, a school for underprivileged kids. Many of them had never seen anything come out of the ground, he told me. This is a radish, I would say. Satterfield described Hanak as a hard-ass from South San Francisco's blue-collar population and as the best restaur- restaurateur he's ever met. Hannack showed him how to run an ecologically and socially conscious food business. He showed Hannack the emerging possibilities of social media. Satterfield started a blog, Nopalize.com about local food culture. And when Instagram launched in 2010, he immediately began posting. Okay, cool, Hannack told him. Play around with it. In the next five years, Noble Lives grew to include a staff of correspondents, two filmmakers, a designer, a wine digest, and a podcast. I was just hustling, Satterfield said. I was leveraging access. I was leveraging access at the hottest restaurant to get people to work below their market value. That's capitalism. Finally, Hanak took Satterfield aside and pointed out that NOPA was paying his salary while he was effectively running his own business. Hanak said, Hanak asked what he really wanted to do. He replied, "I want to do exactly what I've been doing for NOPA." But instead of covering North Carolina, North Carolina, but instead of covering Northern California, I want to cover the world. Satterfield, had a food and travel magazine in mind called Whetstone, W-H-E-T-S-T-O-N-E. The magazine would center on origin foraging, stories about the unheralded people, places, and cultures behind every imaginable food. Nopa gave him $5,000 to have a logo designed, and then he said, They kicked me out of the restaurant. Wow. One of Satterfield's favorite subjects in High on the Hog appears in the third episode, Thomas Downing, a free black man from Virginia's eastern shore who began harvesting oysters in the Hudson in the 1820s and eventually became known as the Oyster King of New York. The owner of the damask curtained, chandelier-hung Downing's Oyster House at 5 Broad Street, he entertained bankers, lawyers, businessmen and society women. In a basement where he stored fresh oysters, he and his son also hid fugitive slaves. He died a wealthy man in 1866. For the show, Satterfield visited Bed-Stuy where a young man named Ben Harney, continuing Downing's legacy, served oysters on the half shell from a cart called the Real Mothersuckers. Harney often had to convince black first-timers, that oysters are not elitist, telling them, there's nothing that's not our thing. There's nothing that's not our thing. One customer was pleasantly surprised. Tastes like outside, like the ocean. Satterfield's encompassing tastes have been an advantage. When he started out, he said, chefs were not really literate about wine, and psalms were much less literate about food. So, I was able to use my love of both to advance my career. My confidence, in a bizarre way, comes from being other and from being comfortable with myself, not being clearly of any of the worlds that raised me. After reading David W. Blight's Race and Reunion, an account of how white Americans betrayed the promise of reconstruction, Satterfield concluded that black history has always been regarded either as dangerous or as not part of the American story. He aimed to help retrieve and shape those narratives, observing the maxim, what whoever tells the story owns it. He worked tirelessly for three years to establish Whetstone. Two crowdfunding campaigns yielded barely $4,000, enough to print 200 copies. At first, his contributors wrote and photographed for free. People told him he was crazy. Gourmet had folded, Saviour was struggling, and David Chang's Lucky Peach was about to go bust after six years. There were no other Black American publishers of food magazines. The media, he said, was designed to keep people like me out. Still, he was confident that readers would pay for a magazine that offered an alternative approach to food, as long as it was enticing enough. Beauty is really powerful when you're trying to persuade people, he said. The difficulties of launching a magazine were compounded by agonizing personal losses. In 2017, Satterfield's podcasting buddy, Franklin Clary, died in a car accident. The next year, Debbie Zeichelbaum, his story editor, was driving through Napa Valley when when a truck hit her car, killing her. Syrah called Layla Schlack, an editor at Wine Enthusiast, and said, I'm lost. I don't think I can continue this, she told. I'm lost. I don't think I can continue this. She told him, I got you, don't worry. The first issue of Whetstone included articles and photo essays about the Makarech Medina, where the author sampled snails in a fragrant Ras El Hanat broth a sustainable farming workshop on the Mendocino coast, and an award-winning coffee farm in the mountains of Colombia. Satterfield sold the initial print run by hand. A friend of his told me he was always carrying around ten issues in his backpack, showing them to everyone he met. Satterfield made visits to wine shops and independent bookstores. I got a satchel and went door-to-door, he said. Wherever he found a flicker of interest, he offered a subscription for four issues, even though we only had one. In the spring of 2019, when Satterfield was 35, he got a call from a filmmaker named Fabienne Tobak. She explained that she and her creative partner, Caris Jagger, had bought the rights to Harris's High on the Hog, and that Roger Ross Williams, an Oscar-winning documentarian, had agreed to join as a director and executive producer. The book had profoundly shaped Satterfield's approach to African-American food history. And he thought that Tobak wanted to talk about how to popularize Harris's ideas. I'm like, oh yes Fabienne, whatever you need me to do. It took several conversations for him to grasp that she wanted him to be the host Satterfield didn't have the swagger of conventional celebrity chefs. Instead, he brought humility and vulnerability. On one early shoot, the showrunner Soshana Guy took him aside and said, hey, listen, I need you to stand up a little bit. But Tobak and Jagger saw his inexperience as an asset. He's a great listener and well-respected in the food world, Jagger said. We wanted someone who had deep knowledge sensitivity, and elegance. In an episode called Our Founding Chefs, one scene takes place in Thomas Jefferson's kitchen at Monticello. Satterfield holds a colander for the scholar Lenny Sorensen while she drains a copper pot of macaroni boiled in milk and water. Sorensen, who got a PhD in American Studies when she was 63, is cooking a dish associated with an enslaved man named James Hemmings, Jefferson brought to Paris during his ambassadorial years and apprenticed to a series of exceptional chefs. After their return, Hemings made the food at Monticello famous. He used creamy sauces and exotic spices such as cloves, nutmeg, and allspice, and often prepared macaroni and cheese for Jefferson and his guests. When Hemings demanded his freedom, Jefferson insisted that he first train his younger brother, which took two years. Hemmings moved to Baltimore and declined an offer to cook for Jefferson in the White House. He drank heavily and died at 36. High on the Hog was a daunting television project, conveying the searing hardships of the black experience alongside the vicarious pleasures of traveling and eating. Jagger was wary of being didactic. Didactic. I always find words that. I've heard before and usually move past without really knowing what they mean, but I want to know what this one means. Didactic. Intended to teach something, particularly in having moral instruction as a motive. Okay, so Jagger was wary of being didactic, of coming down on the themes like a hammer. She and Tobak marked every page of Harris's book with notes then selected the stories that they thought were indispensable williams broke the narrative into four visually alluring episodes opening with enslavement and ending with emancipation hoping he said that this would guarantee another season even thoroughly called the material was even thoroughly culled. the material was too dense for the screen williams said I go into the editing room, there's so much information and talking, I strip it all out. The style of the show has to be slow, quiet, powerful. The first episode, Our Roots, begins with Harris, then 71, shepherding Satterfield through the teeming Dentokpa Market in Kotonou, Benin. It is Satterfield's third trip to Africa, and sometimes she holds his hand. Picking up an enormous object, which she says looks like a hairy elephant foot, she explains that it is an African yam, not to be confused with an American sweet potato. The two make their way to the door of Nori Return in Ouida, formerly one of West Africa's busiest european slave trading ports where harris tells satterfield about the horrors that took place there after a long march from the interior enslaved people were kept in holding pins vulnerable to disease and starvation those who didn't survive were likely buried in mass graves on the european slave trade crossing prisoners were fed slabber sauce flour palm oil and pepper So much of that story is the gruesome details you just provided. But the latter half of that story, Satterfield says, is the story of our resilience. Then he bursts into tears. Williams was crying too. So intensely, he told me that Fabienne had her hand over my mouth and I had mine over hers. The security guards broke down. Wow, that was while filming High on the Hog. Yeah. Yeah. Through the series, Satterfield became an emotional proxy for people everywhere. Many white Americans saw him as a reflective eyewitness to a past that they'd never grappled with. The food, is a vehicle for remembrance and occasionally for comic relief. He is served braised rabbit and wood-roasted carrots over grits at Hatchet Hall in Los Angeles, an ode to James Hemings, the chef says. Satterfield joins an alfresco dinner of poulet rouge hens and hickory-smoked beet cornbread at a farm in North Carolina whose owners expect that it will soon be seized under eminent domain. In Texas, he ventures out on a trail ride with black cowboys who razz him about being a novice. Satterfield, a strata docile filly named Liz, is uneasy but game, his long legs hanging low in the stirrups. He asks, what do I tell Liz to get going? That evening, he joins the cowboys around a campfire and smiles as he works through a bowl full of half-raw cow organs and undercooked son-of-a-gun stew. Satterfield, has been in motion since he left home in his teens, and this May, he made another move to New York, where he and Oviedo had found a Brooklyn sublet. We had dinner one evening in Harlem at Boulevard Bistro, six blocks north of where Central Park West becomes Frederick Douglass Boulevard. The chef and owner, Carlos Swepson, greeted Satterfield warmly. Born in Natchez, Mississippi. Swepson moved with his parents to New Jersey as a child and started cooking under the tutelage of his mother and grandmother. He acquired the space for Boulevard from another migrant, the celebrity chef Marcus Samuelson, who was born in Ethiopia and raised in Sweden before opening a series of restaurants in New York. Baskets of hot cornbread and biscuits soon appeared. Ooh, I would love to taste that. Followed by... Fried chicken, barbecued short ribs, potato salad, candied sweet potatoes, and smoked turkey collards. Catfish was on the menu, but Swepson waved aside my question about spaghetti, saying that he'd had it back in Natchez, but didn't serve it in his restaurant. Satterfield ate appreciatively, with one pedagogic aside, the short ribs topped with barbecue sauce were Texan, not Southeastern. Swepson returned to ask after our meals and to and to talk about how High on the Hog had moved him. I feel like I know you, he told Satterfield, then said that he was writing a memoir about his obstacle strewn path to success. Satterfield gave him his phone number. He is sometimes uneasy with his growing stardom in the food world. I'm trying to use everything I've learned to put it back into the community, he told me but the two businesses he knows best are troubled. Restaurants were devastated by COVID-19 and legacy media is shrinking fast. Like his father, taking the measure of Gary in the 1970s, Satterfield is thinking about how to adapt. His company, Whetstone Media, now includes a podcasting arm, Whetstone Radio Collective, and a culinary talent agency, Hone. He is also writing a book, black terroir i don't know what that is um that must have something to do with the um food industry okay how do you say it terroir let me turn it up a little bit so you can hear it too terroir terroir The complete natural environment in which a particular wine is produced, including factors such as the soil, topography, and climate, the characteristic taste and flavor imparted to a wine by the environment in which it is produced. Terroir. Terroir. Interesting. He is also writing a book, Black Terroir, to be published by HarperCollins. Congratulations, Mr. Satterfield. It starts in Georgia where his mother's ancestors were enslaved on the Weaver Cotton Plantation, continues with his father's upbringing in Gary, Indiana, and explores the gastropolitics of place. That's going to be a good book. He admits that he's made some costly mistakes, expanding rapidly while spreading himself thin podcasting is not known for its lucrative returns. But last year, he hired six new employees for Whetstone Radio. He said it was arrogant to put it out and think that they'll come. The company lost half a million dollars, and he had to let six people go. I'm trying to find balance, he said. I've learned how to raise, make, and burn money. Like other Black American Fim, Black Americans, Familiar with the country's history, Satterfield knows that after every period of progress, there is a retreat. We remember the times of disruption, 1865, 1964, 2020. Yes, sir. See, a a black self-aware mind is aware that 2020 was was a a bigger year than just COVID-19. Because of what comes next, he said, we're now in a moment when we ask, did we actually gain ground? He doesn't expect the forthcoming coverage of the show to be quite so ad- adulatory. Um, let me make sure I said that word right. A-D-U-L-A-T-O-R. Uh, adulatory. 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 Excessively, excessively, <laughs> excessively praising or admi- or admiring. Adulatory. Adulatory. So people, were, he feels like people were going off like over the top about High on the Hog because it was during the 2020 period. But that show really was good. He doesn't expect the forthcoming coverage. Oh, so he's not saying that the show isn't going to be just as wonderful. Season two is going to be amazing just like season one was. But the coverage, that white guilt coverage of the show probably won't be there. Mm. He doesn't expect the forthcoming coverage of the show to be quite so adulatory. Black season is over. The Nigerian chef... Tunde Wei made the same point to me. Wei is known in the United States for pop-up dining events at which he sparked conversations about income inequality by charging black participants a fraction of what he asked whites to pay. He said of Satterfield, having him be a host on a food show, an African-American man in itself was quite a victory. But since this series was released, the appetite in print and on tv for all things black for social justice that shit has dried up Mm. way mentioned a malaysian british food writer and a puerto rican journalist in california who told him that they were again having trouble selling their stories that moment has quieted the writer osagi endolin said we've seen some people get hired that's great they're where they're supposed to be but it becomes the justification for taking the foot off the gas in the big c published in 1940 langston hughes wrote about the complexities of courting mass approval in a chapter about the harlem renaissance when the negro was in vogue he noted that patrons flocked to the cotton club but he never went because the Cotton Club was a Jim Crow club for gangsters and moneyed whites. In mixed clubs, the strangers were given the best ringside tables to sit and stare at the Negro customers like amusing animals in a zoo. Satterfield's most prized books are first editions of Hughes' work, and he reveres the period of creativity that Hughes exemplified. The new episodes of High on the Hog are inspired by the Holland Renaissance. Yes. Oh, yes. Along with the Great Migration and the Civil Rights Movement. Stephen Satterfield. And team. Thank you in advance. Ashe. Still, he is impatient with misplaced with misplaced nostalgia. Harlem is a brand name. People. Yes, I'm one of them. People hold on to that period in that 10-block radius the way others hold on to a non-existing past. As Satterfield sees it, history is a cautionary guide to the future. He still keeps a journal, opening a fresh, a fresh page each month for notes and poems. The entries for May include a plan for adapting Whetstone to the new media environment. There is a broader goal, too of using entrepreneurship to help my people get more free. Ashe, Thomas Downing proved that it could be done. At a time when most African Americans were enslaved, he forced his way into whites only fine dining by making oysters glamorous. Still, Satterfield understands the hazards of the current era. The forest is burning, he said, whether or not it's a controlled burn, bringing back the nutrients or starting all over again is unclear, but he said emphatically, I don't like to lose. Word.